Welcome back to Bible Time. Our text here, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Aren't you grateful for that today? Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would open up your scriptures to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, that you would pour in your spirit and your understanding and your truth. And Lord, that you would remove obstacles and roadblocks to understanding your truth. Lord, help us to let go of our own ideas. Help us to let go of our biases, Lord God, and to just take your word for what it says. Help us to be open-minded to your word and closed-minded to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. First Thessalonians 5, 9 here is the conclusion of um, the Apostle Paul's inspired remark given by the Holy Spirit of God through this holy man of God who is speaking as he is moved by the Holy Ghost of God specifically regarding the last days. All the way back in verse 13 of chapter 4, he said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. (coughs) Excuse me. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you for yourselves. Know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ." who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. (coughs) This reference to the wrath of God is the direct, last direct reference to the end times in this passage of Scripture. Although the, the conversation that Paul's having here and the teaching he's having will wind down over the next two verses um, in verse 10 and verse 11, yet right here is our last major reference to the end times. The day of the Lord is the day of God's wrath. The Bible here says, God hath not appointed us to wrath. Now the wrath of God is broader than just one day, and it's broader than a thousand years, and it's broader than when Christ comes back on his white horse with the name written upon 
on his thigh that no man knows but he himself, his eyes as a flame of fire, and his out of his mouth going a sharp two-edged sword. The wrath of God is something real that has been there um, all the way back. As far as we know, the first time God's wrath was ever poured out, it was poured out on Satan, who was cast down from heaven when he lifted himself up in pride. After that, we find God's wrath being poured out on this world in the worldwide flood. And so the wrath of God was already in full swing before the flood because the flood was the culmination of God's wrath. Following that, we have another major outpouring of God's wrath in Genesis 19 on Sodom and Gomorrah. And God condemned them with an overflow and burnt them in fire and brimstone for their sins. And the sins of Sodom were pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness. Neither did they strengthen the hands of the poor. And they were haughty before God and committed an abomination committed abominations, therefore he took them away. He said, therefore I took them away as I saw fit. You can read all about that in the early chapters of Ezekiel, the sin of Sodom, the abominations Sodom committed were way down the list. By the way, the United States of America and most of the world with her have about checked off everything on that list. Pride, abundance of bread or abundance of idleness, fullness of bread, not strengthening the hands of the poor. You say, what about welfare system? That's crippling the hands of the poor. <coughs> Injudicious. Injudicious charity is a crippling effect. And instead of strengthening them, we make them more dependent, make them slaves of the state. God is going to judge for all this. He says, you were haughty before me and committed abomination. Therefore, I took them away. So the judgment and wrath of God has been a subject throughout the Bible. In Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the law, he says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. The wrath of God is all throughout the Bible. I've not found many places in the Bible where the wrath of God is not given in direct context side by side with the mercy and the love of God. God is a God of love. God is a merciful God. He's full of long suffering, <clears throat> not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's wrath is there in Exodus. It's in Genesis that God's wrath goes on throughout the Bible. Let's look at a couple of the prophets here in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum and let's look at the wrath of God. In our verse that we're looking at here, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we find God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We find the wrath of God being given and taught in direct context right next to salvation that's available through Christ Jesus. Here in the book of Nahum, chapter 1 and verse 2, this is the burden of Nineveh. He says, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and in great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of the sea. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. <coughs> 
The Lord is full of wrath. The Lord is furious against his enemies. The Lord is coming with revenge and vengeance against his enemies. It says in verse 5, the mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. God is an angry God. God is a wrathful God. God is a furious God. God is a vengeful God. God is a God of revenge. God is a God of judgment. God is a God who brings death and war and trouble. The Bible says, he said, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. That's what God himself said in Deuteronomy 32. Go to the book of Amos. This idea that God is love when it is divorced from the reality of God's wrath and God's judgment is heresy. God is love, but just as much as God is love, God is angry. Just as much as God is merciful, God is full of judgment. Just as much as God is a savior and there is none else, God is a revenger of those that sin against him. God is holy and God will not acquit the wicked. He will not overlook your sin. Amos chapter one and verse two. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. When was the last time you heard a praise and worship song off of Amos chapter one and verse two, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus and for, for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Did you hear that promise of God? How many times do you see promises of God posted all over this world, on Facebook, on stickers, on computers, on on post-it notes in offices. People always putting up verses like, I know the thoughts that I have for thee, thoughts of good and not of evil, saith the Lord, thoughts to build and not to plant, not to destroy thoughts to plant and not to pluck up. We, we always quote these promises. Do you see this promise in, a, in Amos chapter one and verse three? For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Look at verse four, but I will send a fire into the house of Haziel. Verse five, I will break the bar of Damascus. Verse six, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Verse seven, I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza. Verse eight, I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod. Verse nine, for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Verse 10, but I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus. Verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Verse 12, but I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palace of Basra. Verse 13, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon. Again, thus saith the Lord. Every one of these, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Verse 13, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of the children of Ammon. And for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. 
but I will kindle a fire, verse 14, in the wall of Rabbah, in verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, verse 2, but I will send a fire upon Moab, verse 3, I will cut off the judge, verse 4, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, verse 5, but I will send a fire upon Judah, verse 6, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. He says, and he goes on down there and gives the judgments of Israel that go on and on through the rest of the book of Amos. <coughs> Look at what he says here. In verse 16, he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. Go to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah, one of the greatest books of the Bible, the Bible in miniature, the grace of God all through this book. One preacher calls it the gospel according to Isaiah in his land. That's how he says Isaiah the gospel according to Isaiah. And it is a fair name for the, for the book. This book is full of the gospel of the Lord, but this book starts with God's wrath. It starts with God's anger. It starts with God's judgment. Chapter two of Isaiah and verse 10, enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for, and for the glory of his majesty, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day for the Lord of the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. Now, every time we find here, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is being poured out on the wicked, the wrath of God being poured out on the hypocrite, the wrath of God being poured out on the denier of God, the wrath of God being poured out on the nations that forget God, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Chapter 2 and verse 19 of Isaiah. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the um, the earth. Look at verse 21 to go. They're throwing their idols to go into the clefts of the rocks into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. When he ariseth to shake terribly the earth, God is a God of war. God is a God of judgment. God is a God of might. God's ways are higher than our ways. God, God's ways are past finding out. God will by no means acquit the wicked. God will not overlook your sins. Your good works will never pay for your bad works. The shedding of blood is what is required for your bad works and God will see to it that your blood is shed. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 21. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. That means men who can hold their liquor, by the way. All you bunch of wine-bibber so-called Christians out there um, slamming your booze and telling everybody, well, Jesus made wine. Look here, it says, Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Now, we don't, we're not going to get into that right now, but don't you dare 
blaspheme Christ by trying to make him an author of drunkenness. Because if you do that, you have sinned against Christ and God will require it of you. You are not rightly dividing that passage, which we are not looking at right now. We have looked at it in the past. Go look it up. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. This is all this so-called Christian crowd running around justifying the wicked. Come as you are. Go as you came. And they stick their long noses up in the air and and frown down the length of their nose at all those preachers that preach against sin and preach about God's righteousness and preach about judgment to come. God's got a message for you today. He says, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness and their blossom shall go up as dust because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people and he hath stretched forth his hand against them and hath smitten them. And the hills did tremble and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets for all this. His anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. This verse here often I've heard used, I've heard it more than once used here to say that the mercy of God is stretched out, that his hand is stretched out still But if you look at the context here, it is not the mercy of God, but rather the anger of God that is causing him to stretch out his hand as Joshua stretched out the spear in the valley whenever the sun did not stand still and the moon stayed still in her place for about a whole day, 24-hour period, so that they could smite the enemies of the Lord. That is the picture that is being given here, that God's staff, his spear is stretched out, his hand is stretched out, his rod of judgment is stretched out still against the enemy and you think it's bad now but it's going to get worse because his wrath is stretched out his hand is stretched out still for all this his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still go to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 12 here the Syrians before and the Philistines behind and they shall devour Israel with open mouth for all this his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still Here God is saying that he's watching the destruction of his own people. He's watching his people be destroyed and devoured by the Philistines. And for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Look down there at verse 17. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Verse 21. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10 there. And look at verse 4. Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Go to verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. 
The rod in God's hand was the heathen, the very wicked people that you would think wouldn't be, would be the ones God was judging were the ones that God was using to judge. This is a picture of the wrath of God in our day. It's also a prophetic look at the wrath of God that is coming on the nations that forget God. Go to Isaiah chapter 66, Isaiah 66 and verse 15. Then we'll jump into the New Testament and start looking there. Isaiah 66 and verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebukes with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of anger. God is a God of rebukes. God is a God of vengeance. God is a God of revenge. God is a God of judgment. God is a God of punishment. God is a God with a rod in his hand and he will break the people in pieces like a potter's vessel with a rod of iron in his hand. Jesus Christ is God. This Jesus that everybody says, oh, I worship Jesus. And then they go and live in unrepentant sin. They prove that they do not know the Jesus of the Bible. God hath not appointed us to wrath. Praise the Lord. Now there's a difference here between the objects of wrath and the objects of mercy. And that's what I want you to see today. (coughs) Lord willing. Matthew chapter 3. Let's look at the difference between the objects of wrath and the objects of mercy. Here in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching about Jesus Christ. He's preaching about repentance. Jesus hasn't made his appearance yet here. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There is a wrath that is coming. And these had been warned to these had not even been warned because they were too righteous in their own eyes. We find that all the people of Jerusalem and Judea and all the region about Jordan were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins, it says in verse 5 and 6. But these Pharisees and Sadducees came with no repentance. They came with no confession of sins. They came and they did not do business with God. They were there to do business with men. They wanted connections. They wanted fame. They wanted to be thought well of. They wanted to be part of the movement. They wanted to be part of the group. They wanted to get on, get in on what was going on, but they didn't want to get right with God. John the Baptist rebuked them, called them a generation of vipers who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He says, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." Tie this to the rest of the um, parables that deal with this kind of typology. And you can easily and quickly see that the fire
fire that Jesus Christ is coming with, the fire that will come at that day of judgment is not a fire that maybe you think is such a good fire. It's ironic that a lot of people will sing and ask God to send the fire and they'll pray and ask God to send the fire. But the fire is a picture of the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God. You say, what about the fire on the old temple on Mount Carmel when Elijah was there having a showdown with the prophets of Baal? The fire on the altar is a picture of judgment every time. Every single time. The fire of God falls on the altar and burns up the sacrifice. And what God was showing the people of Israel on Mount Carmel is there is a God who will judge your sin. There is a God of judgment, a God of vengeance, a God of wrath, a God of fury, a God of fire, a God who the Bible says our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, a holy God, a righteous God, a God who will not at all acquit the wicked, a God who can only be pacified who can only be propitiated through the innocent, vicarious death of a perfect man with the eternal life, by the way. That man, his name is Jesus Christ. He was born of the virgin in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary. His stepdad, Joseph, was there, who was not his physical dad, but Joseph was there to take care of him. Jesus grew in grace and in knowledge. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross of Calvary, and he was buried. The third day, he rose again from the dead and he is alive. And through the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ alone, those who repent of their sins and come to God in contrition, believing in their heart, the Lord Jesus, they will be saved. You say, oh, you're adding to the Bible, putting in repentance, not at all. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then you say, that's kingdom age. Well, whenever you get on into Acts, Paul is there preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill, a bunch of Greek Gentiles. And he said, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. You cannot truly believe in God without repentance. If you believe God at all, repentance is the first fruit of your belief. That's why John the Baptist said, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Believing God will evidently manifest itself in a repentant, broken, and contrite heart before a God who will judge sin and before whom you have offended. You cannot truly believe God about your sin, about who He is, about heaven to gain, about hell to lose without entering into a spirit of contrition and brokenheartedness manifested in true repentance. It is impossible. True belief in God comes with true repentance. The two cannot be separated from each other. Repentance is not a work. It is not changing my life. It is not turning over a new leaf. It is not deciding to do something differently. Repentance is a reaction that is birth that creates a change of my heart when I am confronted with the holy, awesome power of a righteous God and my desperate, evil wickedness before him so that I see myself as a sinner in need of mercy because I I recognize that there is no sacrifice that can possibly pay the price for my sins except the sacrifice of the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous on that altar of Calvary, that old rugged cross. Here in Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope, in hope of the 
glory of God. This justification that came by faith came after the law worked wrath in Romans 4.15. It came after works were destroyed in Romans 4 and verse 4 and 5. And that showed that Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. It came after Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It comes after Romans 3.20. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It came after verse 10 of Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And Romans 5, 1 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. I want you to get this today as we're looking at the contrast here. The contrast between those who God has appointed unto wrath and those who God has not appointed unto wrath. Those that have been appointed by God to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God. God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We're going to try and really bring this in right here and get an understanding of this, what God is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. We're not appointed to wrath. If you are a child of the day, a child of light, born again by the power of God, having become a son of God through adoption of sons that God has given through His Holy Spirit that cries, Abba, Father, in your heart. If you are a child of God, you have not been appointed to wrath. Jesus said in the book of John, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. Here in Romans 5, He says of this tribulation that we glory in tribulations. Listen to me today as we talk about the end times, as we bring this thing around here and apply this thing to end times, God has already said and God has already decreed that the believer in Jesus Christ who lives godly shall suffer persecution. And he said, in the world ye shall have tribulation. It really makes me wonder and it makes me pause whenever people are hell bent on fighting over the fact that they think is a fact that's fallacy that the church will go through the tribulation. The church is in its tribulation. The church is going through tribulation and they will say things like this. God's got to purge away the dross. God's got to present a bride without spot and wrinkle and he's going to do it through the tribulation. What rot, what lies, what bunch of heresy that that is. Jesus Christ has bought his bride with his blood. He made her without spot with his blood. He made her without wrinkle with his blood. He gave her his victory by his resurrection. God is not in the business of 
of purifying himself a church through fires of tribulation. God is in the business of giving us the victory through Jesus Christ. You say, what about the verses that deal with us having to be conformed to the Lord and not to the world and the chastening of God and all these things? Those verses do have application to the day-to-day life of the Christian, but the bride of Jesus Christ, the church, is not appointed to wrath and neither are you. Did you know that the chastening of God on his Christians is not wrath? God does not chasten his born again believers in wrath, but in love. It says no chastening for the present seemeth joyous, but grievous, but afterward it yieldeth the more peaceable fruit of righteousness. And I probably butchered that up. You can go to Hebrews and look it up today. And this is why we can say in Romans chapter five, that tribulation worketh patience and patience, experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy ghost, which is given unto us. He says here that we glory in tribulations. This whole mindset where we're sitting here under the, as Christians under the wrath of God is a satanic mindset. This is how Satan wants to twist your mind. Satan wants to twist your perception of your heavenly father. I'm here to tell you today that the moment that you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, believing in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God hath raised him from the dead. The moment that you're born again, old things are passed away. All things are made new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That holy thing which is born of God cannot commit sin and you are not appointed to wrath. God did not make you born again. God did not adopt you into his sonship so that he could put you through some kind of purgatory. Listen to me today. We've got a purgatory eschatology running around here, running rampant in this land and it's false. God has not appointed you to wrath. The whole mindset, the whole mindset is flipped backwards of what God wants you to have whenever you get off on that messed up eschatology thinking that you are going through this tribulation. God has already said that you will go through tribulation and you're going through tribulation right now if you're a true born again believer. You say, no, we're in a bubble in America. Hogwash. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The degrees of severity may vary, but the persecution will be present. We do have some leniency from some manners of persecution in America. But because of that, we have other manners of persecution that are foreign to lands that cut off the heads of Christians because they don't have any Christians living or in the open that they can persecute any other way. So there's different kinds and different types of persecution. But let me tell you today, beloved, God hath not appointed us to wrath. If there, if I had to take one verse, and there's way more than one verse, those of you that would misquote this, there are hundreds of verses, hundreds of passages throughout the Bible that indicate that God's church, the church of Jesus Christ, the Gentile church, it will be caught up to meet the Lord before the tribulation, whether in type or in open teaching. But throughout the word of God, it holds true all throughout. And if I had to choose one verse, 
If I had to choose one verse to preach on that subject to set people's minds at ease about this, I would choose this verse. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the great tribulation real quick, and then we'll close it out. The greatest wrath that you can be saved from and the salvation that God has given you to obtain is that which is by faith in Jesus Christ. The salvation of your eternal soul. But the salvation of your soul is not the only thing that you have to look forward to. God's going to save your body. He's going to resurrect it from the dead. God's going to save your soul through sanctification and finally purification. When you see Christ, you'll be like him. It doth not appear yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Go to the book of Revelation. And I want to just look at this for just a moment, give you a quick outline of this book of Revelation. I want to focus in on a few points here that deal with this wrath. And I want to show you that the, that you are not appointed under wrath. If you're a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, saved by the grace of God, a new creature created in true righteousness and true holiness, indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, if that's you, you are not appointed to wrath today. Revelation chapter 1, here he says, here Christ is seen among the candlesticks and we're just going to blow through this real quick. This all sets the stage for 2 Thessalonians, which we're going to get into, Lord willing, in the near future. 2 Thessalonians deals much more with the day of wrath and with the Antichrist and things of that nature. So here in Revelation chapter 1, you have him in the Christ in the midst of the seven candlesticks. It says in verse 13, One like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were like wool, as white as snow. Hang on here, pay attention, and we'll try and get this. Get the big picture of the book of Revelation. Here Jesus Christ, is, in verse 16, is in his right hand, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance it was as the sun shineth in his strength, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Right here in verse 19, God gives you the outline for the whole book. God regularly outlines the books of the Bible. As you read them, if you'll search for it, God will give it to you. And God's outlines will unlock the truths of the book for you. He says, write the things which thou hast seen. That's what he just did. He saw Jesus Christ standing in the midst of seven candlesticks or in the midst. He saw the seven stars in his right hand, the sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. He saw that his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are. Now, the things which are will be the second segment of the book of Revelation coming up. He says, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So here are the things that John saw. Chapter 2, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. If you go down to verse 8, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write. Verse 18, and unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. Here four churches are written to in Revelation chapter 2. These are the things which are. Revelation chapter 3 concludes the seven churches. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write. Verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And verse 14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. These things saith the Amen 
and the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Here are these seven letters written to seven churches. Sum up all of the churches according to Christ who had seven stars and seven candlesticks and seven letters. Three sevens. A divine perfection. Seven stars, seven candlesticks, seven letters to the seven churches that were mentioned before by Christ. The seven churches that he saw. These are the things which are. And this is the time that we find ourselves in today. This is the age of the church. This is the time of the Gentiles in full force and in full swing right now. The time of the Gentiles has not come in. The cup of iniquity of the Gentiles is not yet full. Though it is astounding to to see how much iniquity God lets go in his, in his long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The letters to these churches, I will not go over this in detail today. Maybe someday we will. The letters to these seven churches, as I was studying world history in high school, having never heard that this had any correlation with history, I was studying my world history, and as I concluded a summary of the history of the world, and then got out my Bible again, and got to Revelation again and started reading again. Names and dates flooded the pages or the sides and the margins of my Bible in my mind as I saw God not only writing literal letters to literal churches that literally existed in that day, but also outlining for us everything that would affect the church. What we have here in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 is are not only letters of exhortation to literal churches that literally exist, that literally apply to every church and every Christian that ever lived and ever will live. But we, what we also have here is a survey of the history of the Gentile church written by God in perfect and accurate typology that shows us his timeline and his scale. And according to that timeline, we are in the age of Laodicea. Again, we're not going to get into the details of that today, maybe another day. I did not prepare for that today because that is not our goal. We're trying to move fast. But the Philadelphian church is seen in the great missionary movements of the church of Jesus Christ in the 1800s and the 1900s leading up into the mid-1900s where suddenly a coldness and a darkness sometime around the 50s and the 60s set in on the churches and a sleep passed over and a fog passed over the churches and we entered into the Laodicean church age, the final of seven segments of church history. And here we are today, a time marked by fog away, a time marked by lukewarmness, a time marked by wealthy churches that are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but are blind and miserable, poor, wretched and naked. And this church is commanded by Jesus Christ to repent. Following the command to repent, chapter 4 begins with the words, After this I looked, and behold a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. The third part of Jesus's outline that he gave, the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which will be hereafter. At the close of the letters to the churches, of the of the seven churches, the completion of the churches, the, co- the close of these seven representative bodies who make up for us in typology as well as literal reality, they make up for us a representation of the entire church throughout the entire church age, throughout the time since 
Pentecost to the time of the catching up of the church. And these churches at the close, though they're commanded to repent, there's also a promise given to them. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. The throne is coming next. But before the throne, a door is opened in heaven. A trumpet talks with him and says, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And John is caught up to in the air to the throne that is set in heaven. Look at verse two. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And here John becomes a spectator in God's great wrath and indignation against the world, which by the way, is exactly what God is going to do with the church. Here God uses this to show us not only by telling us, but also by showing us and using John as an example, what he is going to do with his church. From from Revelation chapter 3, all the way through to the end of Revelation, the church is not mentioned again until you get to Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, she appears as the bride. You see evidence of the church because you find multitudes in heaven worshiping God. You find them over and over and over and over again in heaven, worshiping God, commentating on the events of the tribulation, praying to God, seeking God through it all, and worshiping God as he pours out his wrath upon the earth. Chapter 5, chapter 4 is come up hither and then the worship of God. And here you have the four and twenty elders um, crying out to God, casting their golden crowns. And if I remember right there, is that the casting crowns? Yes, it is. Verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Chapter five, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. This opens you to the discussion of the seven seals here in these next chapters from chapter four to chapter 10, you deal with an outpouring of the wrath of God on this world and through chapter 11 that is. These next chapters, chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Now here he has the Lamb opening the seals in chapter 5 and the worship of the Lamb who is Jesus Christ the righteous and these people crying out and worshiping the Lamb. Chapter 6 sees the six seals opened and gives you the results of the six seals and the results are deadly. The results are difficult. The results are trouble on the face of the earth. In chapter 7 it opens with the sealing of 144,000 Israelites 12,000 from every tribe. God doesn't lie. He's not talking about some lost tribes. He's not talking about a bunch of Gentiles masquerading as Jews. He's talking about Israelites or he wouldn't have said it. And he names them literally as the children of Israel in multiple ways and times throughout this passage. He seals 144,000 Israelites And we find here, down here, that as he's doing this, sealing the Israelites to be his witnesses on earth, verse 9, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. There's the church. 
There's the church, the great multitude, standing before God, crying with a loud voice, salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. He goes on here through these events. There's the worship of God mixed throughout all of this. This seventh seal is opened in Revelation chapter 8. That's the main event of Revelation chapter 8. The seventh seal is br- brings in seven trumpets. God likes seven, amen? There's seven seals and seven trumpets once the seventh seal is opened. And the seven trumpets begin to sound. Four trumpets, the number of the earth, sound in the in chapter 8. In Revelation chapter 9, the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet sound. And the sinners refuse to repent against Almighty God as His wrath is poured out on the earth. This in no way, in no type can possibly apply to the church. It is a total mistake to apply this to the church. Why can I say that? Because God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We go through the wrath of wicked men against God. That's our tribulation. The church goes through the wrath of wicked men against God. But from God, we find only words of love and comfort and hope. Even here in Thessalonians, this whole thing is sandwiched with comfort. Comfort one another. Comfort one another. So the seventh seal is open. Seven trumpets are brought forth. Four trumpets sound in chapter eight. Chapter nine gives you the fifth trumpet in detail, the sixth trumpet in detail. Obdurate, disobedient, rebellious sinners refusing to repent. Chapter 10 of Revelation, an angel stands with a little book. Seven, he, the seventh trumpet is to sound and seven thunders utter their voices. You have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven thunders. The words of the seven thunders are sealed up. The little book is given to John, and he's told to go preach. There in Revelation chapter 11, he's told to measure the temple, and then he's introduced to two witnesses. And the third, the final trumpet is mentioned there. The seventh trumpet is mentioned in chapter 11, as well as the third woe that will come upon the earth. And this seals up the sum of the wrath of God being given to you in full tale. It's being given to you as, as, as if a business transaction is being conducted in heaven. It's not being given to you necessarily um, to say that all of this will happen before what comes in verse 12 happens, but rather that all of this will happen in order. And then we enter into chapter 12, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter um, 16. And chapter 17, mostly deal with wonders in heaven. But then we will see the seven last plagues mixed in there. So let's look at this real quick as we go over this outline. Chapter 12 of Revelation, a wonder appears in heaven. A woman, and it tells her story. This woman is the is Israel, and it tells the story of Israel and the bringing forth of the Christ child from a heavenly perspective to give you the perspective of God, of the beast, of the devil, and of the angels as all of this work of revelation is unfolded. Instead of seeing the story of Israel from little stories like Ruth and Boaz, now we're seeing it with a woman and a dragon and the woman being carried away into the wilderness for for a time etc. Next in chapter 13 is is a sea representing the people of the world and the beast comes up out of the sea and his story is told with his number being told of 666. 
And this happens in Revelation 13, the story of the beast. The number of his name is 600, three score and six, 660 and six, 666. In Revelation 14, Mount Zion is the scene. Instead of heaven, instead of the sea, now we have Mount Zion. And the lamb is, appears here in Revelation 14 as the main theme. And his story is told. His 144,000 are mentioned. His white cloud is mentioned. His sickle is mentioned. And the winepress of the wrath of God is mentioned. This is all setting the stage. This is all giving you the view. This is giving you the cast and showing you the different characters of the final great drama of God's wrath and unfolding of his wrath and his plan for all mankind and the final conquest of Christ's enemies here in the book of Revelation. So here in chapter 15, you've seen the lamb in chapter 14. In chapter 16, or in chapter 15, you have the seven vials of wrath. By the way, back in chapter 6, I believe it was, I'll try and turn back there real quick, we had the people, there it is in, in verse 16 and 17, the people under this wrath, they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? The lamb is pouring out his wrath on the world. The lamb is reintroduced here in great detail in Revelation chapter 14. Much said about the lamb. Revelation chapter 15 gives us seven angels. In the midst of these seven angels with the seven last plagues being given the seven vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. You have these that are singing uh, that have, you have these that have gained the victory over the beast and over his image. These are tribulation saints who have been evidently killed, but I'm not going to get into all that right now because I haven't studied it out. I'm liable to trip up and make a mistake. I need to study it out before I get into more detail on it anyway. But in any case, this here is the in the midst of the seven vials being brought out, you have the worship of God and the temple filled with the smoke of the glory of God from his power and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels was fulfilled. Revelation 16, you have the pouring out of the seven vials upon the earth. And what a great series of judgments this is. And the Bible shows us that throughout this, men repented not to give him glory in verse 9. Repent not to give him glory in verse 11 and in verse 21 they blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail for the plague thereof was exceeding great so you we find here that through all these plagues and through all the trumpets through all the seals through all the thunders through all the vials of God's wrath man repents not to give him glory these are not children of the day these are children of wrath, children of disobedience, children of their father, the devil, being judged. Revelation chapter 17 introduces another scene to us and another player in this great drama that is way more than a drama to the inhabitants of the earth, but will unfold before the eyes of the church as they watch from heaven and behold God's judgments on this wicked world. And they worship God and say, glory to the lamb, holy, 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 Lord God almighty. Now here in Revelation 17, we're, entered, we're brought to a wilderness, and here we're introduced to the great whore riding upon the great beast. And we're told her story. And as her story wraps up, we get to Revelation 18. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And here is the coming, is the bringing down the destruction of this great city, Babylon, which is the city of the great whore. <coughs> now, 
according to the Bible. I'll look that up. We'll study it more whenever we get there. Now, Revelation 19. Revelation 19 begins with praise to God for the judgment of the great whore, followed by, in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb. I'm not going to get into it today. This is an outline, but I do want to just pause to mention the righteous judgment of God. Jesus Christ is being um, propositioned today by countless millions of voices reading rosaries and prayer beads and Hail Marys and Pax Vobiscum and all these lies. Latin sayings, they're being, he's being tried to be being propitiated, but in reality, he's being propositioned to give up his holiness. He's being propositioned to sell out his righteousness. He's being propositioned to come down off the throne of his holiness and accept for payment for sin, prayers and beads and confessions and candles and crackers and wafers and wine. And he's being propositioned by gifts and by money and by tithes and by good works and by good deeds and by prayer wheels, by those that would call him by other names and try and propitiate God with all of their Buddhistic and Hinduistic and Catholic false religions. The Muslim prayers are being uttered today from thousands and millions of heads going down and lowering themselves against their carpets as they pray to God and ask him for mercy apart from the blood of Christ. This world and its religious system is offering salvation by another name. They're offering propitiation through other than the blood of Christ. They're offering a sacrifice other than the perfect sinless lamb of God. They're offering the fruits of their own righteousness. And the great whore is trying to make love to the Savior today. The great whore is making great temples. The great whore is making great churches. The great whore is making great great signs, great crosses, and placing them beside the roadways and telling everyone, come to us. We can help you get to God and trying to proposition Christ to come down and to commit adultery with them, to commit spiritual adultery with them, and Christ is not going to do it. The judgment of the great whore is coming. The prayers of the harlot church are in vain. She will be judged. Her prayers will fall by the wayside. Her crosses will be burnt in fire. Her her paternosters, her host, her wafers, her wine, her golden cups, her prayer wheels, her sacrifices, her idols, everything that she does is going to be burnt with fire and devoured and God will judge the great whore. But the same chapter that where they worship Christ for the judgment of the great whore is the same chapter where the marriage supper of the Lamb comes. Hallelujah. Christ will judge the great whore and in purity and in righteousness with not one least possibility of an accusation of deviating from his holiness and from his perfection and from his purity and from his righteous judgment. He will present himself to his bride and his bride to him there before the father in heaven. And we will enter into the marriage supper of the lamb. Hallelujah. This is Revelation chapter 19. Following the marriage supper of the Lamb, the judgment of the great whore is finished, but the beast and the false prophet in this world are gathered in their armies against Jerusalem. And here in Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened in verse 11, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. 
himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in white linen fine linen white and clean and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords behold the lamb of God behold the lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world behold him coming back from glory on his white horse behold him in his righteousness behold him in his faithfulness behold him for he is true hallelujah to the lamb here, judgment is set here in chapter 20 against the beast or the, the devil and Satan are bound. He is the dragon. He's cast into the bottomless pit a thousand years. In chapter 19, the beast is cast alive into the lake of fire with the false prophet. In chapter 20, the devil's cast into the bottomless pit. The rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years is finished. Six times it says the thousand years and Christ reigns literally on a literal earth in literal Jerusalem on the literal throne of David is the literal son of David and the literal son of God for a thousand years at the close of which the devil is loosed for a little season. He goes out and deceives the armies of the earth and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil that was deceived and was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God. Verse 12. And the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire behold the wrath of the lamb first thessalonians 5 9 says for god hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our lord jesus christ chapter 21 goes on with the new heaven and the new earth and the new jerusalem Jerusalem. Chapter 22 speaks of pure water, no curse. Behold, I come quickly. As we close today, Romans chapter 5 told us that scarcely for a righteous man will some die, yet peradventure for a, um, oh Lord, for a righteous man. Let me find it real quick. I'm totally off derailed here. Romans chapter 5, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Do you hear me today? God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our by our Lord Jesus Christ if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life hallelujah hallelujah 
The final words of the book of Revelation, as it winds down, Jesus Christ brings some final exhortations. He speaks of pure water, no curse. He says, Behold, I will come quickly. Whosoever will, whosoever will, let him take, of the, take the water of life freely. Here we have a divine invitation, and this is what we close with today. It says here, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. Come today to Jesus Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. Turn to God through our Lord Jesus Christ and you too will escape the wrath of the Lamb that is set to come upon this wicked world. Father, we thank you for this great salvation. We thank you for the glorious Lamb. We thank you, Lord, that you have not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to follow you and to live, Lord, in the light of eternity, Lord God. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.